You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. He has risen indeed. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, we're still in John 16. We were there last week. We'll be there for two more weeks where Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is about to come. His arrest in the garden, his trial through the night, his condemnation by the Sanhedrin, and then before Pilate, and especially at last his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And Jesus, as he's preparing the disciples for that, he says to them and to us that this is all for our good. It is good for you that I go away. It is expedient, our text said. In other words, it is better for you if I'm gone. Now, how could this possibly be true? How could it possibly be true that it would be better for Jesus to be at the Father's right hand than for Jesus to be right here in our midst walking around? Jesus answers the question. He says like this, If I don't go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, this is what Jesus wants us to know, to understand, and to rejoice in. That his departure means the sending of the Holy Spirit, and that this is good. Now, there's so much in this text that we could spend our entire lives learning it, and still not finish the class. But, start today by considering at least this. First, the name that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. And then second, the threefold work to which Jesus assigns the Holy Spirit. The work of convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So first, Jesus gives this name to the Holy Spirit. He calls him the Comforter. Or in some other versions, the Helper. I think the best translation, in fact, would be something like the Advocate. The Greek word is parakletos, which is a normal verb. In fact, the verb shows up all over the Bible, and it simply means to encourage, to encourage to ennoble with words and with presence. So Hebrews, for example, is written for encouragement. Paul writes to encourage uh, the church of Ephesus and so forth. It's, that, that word is very common. But that word as a noun is, in fact, very rare. It only is used in two places, here in the John 14, 15, and 16, and then later in 1 John chapter 3. And it's a technical term when used as a noun. It means the person who stands in court to defend you. It, it, really, it means a defense attorney to use our modern language. I say, so, so that, I mean, can you imagine hearing that's what Jesus, Jesus says, I'm sending you a defense attorney. <laughs> now that sounds somewhat funny. But this one word, I think, opens up the whole realm of the biblical teaching uh, that is important for us to remember, and namely, that God is judge. And that we are the ones being judged. Now imagine this, that you're brought into heaven... And when you, when you come into heaven there, right in the middle of the heavenly throne room is God sitting on the throne, but he's sitting there as a judge. And when you come into heaven, you come to your own trial, to your own judgment. Now we know that the first thing that you do when you walk into a court is that you make a plea. Guilty or not guilty. Guilty or innocent. And this is no different in the heavenly court. All of us will have to appear before the judgment seat of God, and we will enter a plea. Now, it's important to recognize that everything in us, 
down to our bones, we are convinced of our own goodness. Every single part of us wants to go into that heavenly court and claim our own innocence. Not guilty, we want to say. You see this in the people around you, and you should feel this in yourself. This confidence that we have in ourselves that we are pretty good people. I mean, sure, right? This is how it goes. Sure, I've made mistakes, but everybody makes mistakes. I've tried to do good. I've worked hard. I've sacrificed. I've suffered. And on and on we go. Now, I think, you guys can tell me if you you think I'm wrong about this, but I think, in fact, that most people are living their lives in such a way and with such motivation that they can stand on the last day and defend a plea of not guilty when it's time for them to be judged. And that most people's lives are simply a series of attempts to collect evidence of their own innocence and goodness. Surely they make mistakes. We all do. But every time you make a mistake, you start to build up a defense. You know, an argument for why it wasn't that bad. They did it first. Or they deserved it. Or I deserved a break. Or no one was hurt. Or whatever. We're building a case for our own innocence. We minimize our crimes. We amplify our good works. So that we can stand up and support our claim to be not guilty. Now, now, we see this all over because it is the natural state of our flesh. Pride, the chief sin. But all of this fool's errand. It's a deluded life. In fact, it is the very definition of hypocrisy and it is doomed to fail because while it might be possible for us to fool our own consciences to thinking that we're pretty good people, God cannot be mocked. And if we go and claim before God not guilty, if we make the plea of not guilty, if we claim to be good and innocent, then what happens in the heavenly court is that the Ten Commandments are in full force and Moses is our prosecutor and we are found guilty. No one is good, no, not one, says St. Paul, quoting the Psalms. All are guilty and fall short of the glory of God. So to claim your own innocence and your own goodness on the last day is to insult God. And the result of this claim is condemnation, eternal condemnation. The sentence is handed down, hell itself. Which is why, dear saints, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to do His first work to convince the world of sin. It is an astonishing theological mystery that the doctrine of sin needs to be preached. We would think that if there was anything obvious in the world, it would be our own sinfulness. But we are so fallen and corrupt in our sin that we don't even see it. We don't even feel it. So the Holy Spirit has to come and convince us of it. Now, to make a quick note in passing, I'd like to simply point out that the object of the Holy Spirit's work, as Jesus notes in the text, is the entire world. In fact, this is one of the reasons why the 
why the departure of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit is better. Because while Jesus taught in Israel, in Galilee, and in Judea, the range of his work and the range of his teaching was limited, but it is not so with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says he will convince the world of sin, the entire world. The work of the Holy Spirit will extend to all the nations. And I think there's something else to note in the text. Because Jesus says not only is it the work of the Holy Spirit to convince the world of sin, but he goes on to explain it. Jesus says, because they do not believe in me. Now the world is convinced of its own righteousness. In fact, we, we've covered this already, we're convinced of our own righteousness. But the Holy Spirit comes to preach the law, to show our sins, and especially, according to Jesus, to expose our chief sin which is unbelief. He will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. Now, we might know in some little way that we have done not done the things that we are supposed to do, that we haven't loved our neighbor like we could have loved our neighbor, but the stuff of the first table of the law, the first three commandments, the having other gods and the laziness in prayer and a neglect of God's words, these sins, the worst sins, apart from the Holy Spirit, we don't even know. They don't, they don't even register in our conscience. So the Holy Spirit comes with, it, with God's law like a mirror to show sin, to show us our sin, the depth of our depravity, our lovelessness, and our idolatry, and our unbelief. And he does this for this very specific purpose. So that when we step into the heavenly court, our plea is not innocent. We do not stand before God and say, not guilty, but rather recognizing our sin, recognizing our failure, recognizing the depth of our own sinfulness, we stand before God and say, guilty. Guilty is charged. Guilty even worse than I know. Now, we practice this, by the way, every Sunday when we come in here. As you can imagine, you walk into church and the very first question is, how do you plea? And we all say it together. I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess to all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended thee and I justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. In other words, I am guilty. But look what happens. If you claim to be innocent in the heavenly court, then you have Moses and Jesus and all the heavenly, all the heavenly hosts as your enemy. But when you stand before God and plead guilty, something, something very different happens. The court takes a very different shape. Now Jesus comes to stand at your side. And he argues your case. Not the evidence of your good works, but the evidence of his death and, and his resurrection, the evidence of his blood and his righteousness. And this, saints, is the second work of the Holy Spirit. You see it? To convict the world of righteousness. Because, says Jesus, I go to the Father. You see, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, and Jesus is called the same. This is the reference uh, that I hinted at earlier, 1 John 3, 1, where it says, we have an advocate with the Father, a paraclete with the Father, a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he's not just sitting there enjoying the view, he is praying for you and pleading your case. Jesus pleads his blood for you, his suffering for you, his death and his resurrection for you. And God the Father hears the case, and he declares you to be innocent, to be forgiven, forgiven, to be pardoned. 
He does not hold your sin against you. He releases you. And He gives you the sentence of freedom. Now, just like this is happening in the heavenly court, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit brings that same word, that same preaching, that same righteousness down into the courtroom of your heart and your conscience, speaking the same words, declaring the same thing. The Holy Spirit, says Jesus, convicts the world of righteousness. That that is, the Holy Spirit causes the good news of the gospel to be preached to you. So that you know that you are declared to be righteous and innocent and holy. Not because of what you've done. Not because of your good works. Not because of your great and heroic efforts. But simply and only because the blood of Jesus has washed away your sin. The Bible has a picture for this. It's absolutely beautiful. If you can imagine that every time you sin and break God's law, it's like getting a stain on your shirt. Like eating chips and salsa. It just happens all the time. And you've been sinning your whole life, and now you are simply filthy. I mean, you're covered with stains. But you take that shirt, and you dip it into a vat filled with the blood of Jesus, and it comes out absolutely pure and holy and gleaming white. This is what the Bible preaches, that the blood of Jesus covers you. It washes away all your sins. makes you beautiful to God. By His blood, by His death, you are clean. So, and this is really quite stunning, that when we go into the heavenly court, guilty is not our only plea. It's true. How do you plead according to your sins? Guilty. But when we stand before God, claim something else, something more, Guilty, but forgiven. We claim Christ. So on the last day, we will stand before God. How do you plea? And we will say, I am baptized. I am forgiven. I am washed by the blood of the Lamb. I am pure and I am holy, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. And I now have the righteousness, not just the righteousness of Adam and Eve in the garden, but the righteousness of God Himself, as Paul preached, that He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You have the perfection of Christ, all of His keeping of God's law. It is given to your account. So that you are, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the heavenly court, you are as holy as Jesus is holy, as perfect as Jesus is perfect, as innocent as Jesus is innocent, and as righteous as Jesus himself is righteous. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. Now, it seems to me like this is enough for the Holy Spirit to do. To preach the law, convict the world of sin, and preach the gospel, convict the world of righteousness. But Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit has a third work to convict the world of judgment. And this sounds like it's going to be back to the law, but listen to how Jesus describes this work of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Isn't it amazing? So I'll speak for myself now. When I hear Jesus say, He will convict the world of judgment, I immediately think of the judgment that I deserve. 
because I'm a sinner. But that is not what Jesus is talking about. The judgment that the Holy Spirit comes to preach is the judgment of the devil himself. The judgment of your enemy. The condemnation of your foe. And that's what's going on here. I mean, you know that you're sinners. And you know that Christ died for you. You're Christians. But the devil hates you. And he hates your faith. And he hates your trust in God's word. And so he's constantly attacking it and assaulting it and assaulting you and tempting you and tempting me to doubt and be afraid and to think that we haven't done enough. So the Holy Spirit comes to remind us that the devil is defeated. That the devil has no authority over you, that the devil has no claim on you, that the promise of the gospel stands against all of the assaults of the devil himself. You see, it is the Holy Spirit who gives you repentance. It's the Holy Spirit who gives you faith. And here Jesus says, it is the Holy Spirit who keeps you in the faith all your life and even through death, who is beating back the devil, who is trying to steal away the seed of the word planted in your heart. He beat back the devil's lies with the truth of the gospel so that the heavenly verdict of the righteousness of Christ is heard all of your life. It echoes in your heart all the days that you live in this veil of tears and you hold on to it and you cling to it and the devil cannot steal it from you. He will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So, as astonishing as it might seem, dear saints, we too this morning rejoice that Jesus has gone to the Father. That we no longer see Him face to face and walk with Him as He used to walk with His disciples because we know that He has delivered to us the great gift of the Holy Spirit who continues to come to us and to all the world with these gifts. He continues to convict us of our sin, to show us our unbelief. He continues to preach to us the righteousness of Christ in the Gospel. And he continues to defend us against all the assaults of the devil until we're brought to heaven itself. And this, the work of the Holy Spirit, is our great joy, our our great comfort, and our great peace. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. Alleluia. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.